Welcome to the penultimate episode in our 11-part mini-series examining Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. My name is R.L. Solberg, and I am really glad you're here with us. This is the episode many of you have been waiting for patiently over these last however many weeks it's been. We're now starting the final leg of our study and examining the Council of Nicaea. And as you know, this mini-series is a companion to my book, Divergence. Now, you don't need to order the book in order to take part of this series, but please buy a copy anyway, because 100% of the profits from this book are being donated to fight anti-Semitism globally through an organization called Stand With Us. You can get more information at divergencebook.com or rlsolberg.com. Now, in the last episode, we, we kind of came to a summary on the early Christian writings. We looked at writings, uh, the most anti-Jewish writings I could find from the first three centuries, and took a look, dove into them to see how the Christian theology and Christian attitudes towards the Jewish people and towards Jewish theology had progressed over the centuries. Um, we looked at that in view of our five-point biblical framework and our two theological markers. If all of this sounds foreign to you, then you probably need to go back to episode one and listen from the top. Um, but today we are going to grapple with the famous or infamous, depending on your view, Council of Nicaea. In the year 325, the Roman Emperor Constantine convened the first ecumenical or global church council in history. The gathering took place in... Nicaea, as you may have gathered, which is in what would be modern-day Iznik, Turkey. Uh, and it lasted from May through August of that year, and it was attended by, some say, over 300 bishops, there's not an exact count, that had come from across the Roman Empire. Now remember, Christianity had become a legal religion just 12 years earlier, in the year 313, thanks to the Edict of Milan. Um, so I, I came across this great uh, presentation by historian Bruce Shelley. He does re a really good job of setting the scene for us at the, at the council. So let me read you this quote. He says this, quote, July 4th, 325 was a memorable day. About 300 Christian bishops and deacons from the eastern half of the Roman Empire had come to Nicaea, a little town near the Bosporus Straits, flowing between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. In the conference hall where they waited was a table, and on it lay an open copy of the Gospels. The emperor, Constantine the Great, entered the hall in his imperial jewel-encrusted multicolor brocades, but out of respect for the Christian leaders, without his customary train of soldiers. Constantine spoke only briefly. He told the churchmen they had come to some agreement on the crucial questions dividing them. Division in the church, he said, is worse than war. The bishops and deacons were deeply impressed. After three centuries of periodic persecutions instigated by some Roman emperor, were they actually gathered before one, not as enemies but as allies? Some of them carried scars of the imperial lash. One pastor from Egypt was missing an eye. Another was crippled in both hands as a result of red-hot irons. But Constantine had dropped the sword of persecution in order to take up the cross. Just before a decisive battle in 312, he had converted to Christianity. 
I just thought that was a great way to set the, to set the stage. Um, it's also worth noting that according to historians Philip Schaff and Henry Wace, who we've, who we've referred to before, you know, they've got this giant tome called A Select Library of Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers of the Christian Church. Uh, it's actually more interesting than it sounds, but they described the church fathers who met at this council. They said this of them, quote, They understood their position to be that of witnesses, not that of exegetes. The first requirement was not learning, but honesty. The question they were called upon to answer was not, what do I think probable or even certain from Holy Scripture? But what have I been taught and what has been entrusted to me to hand down to others? So at this time, the church was not only finding its way ecclesiastically, but theologically as well. Um, Although a body of accepted writings had reached consensus by the time of Nicaea, the church would not establish an official New Testament canon of books for many years. And the Christian understanding of the Trinity was still in its infancy as well. And those who believe that racism in the early church led to a corruption of Christian theology, and I'm looking at my Hebrew roots friends here, uh, they typically point to the Council of Nicaea as ground zero. It's here, they claim, the anti-Semitic sentiments that grew among early Christian leaders solidified into an anti-Jewish doctrine that was agreed on by the whole church. Nicaea, they allege, is where Christianity officially left the Torah behind. It's where Passover was exchanged for Easter, and the Saturday Sabbath was replaced with Sunday worship. At least that's how they see it. That's the common misconceptions that are out there today, not just in the Hebrew roots and other false teachings, but even within the church, even within Christendom, some of these misconceptions are held. However, as we've seen throughout this mini-series, long before Nicaea, a pattern had organically emerged within the church on many of these issues. And and ironically, the Council of Nicaea didn't even discuss the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish roots of Christianity, nor, despite popular allegations, did they determine the New Testament canon or the doctrine of the Trinity or discuss the Sabbath. You know, these, again, these are popular misconceptions held today, even within the church. So let me be clear. The New Testament canon was not decided at Nicaea. The doctrine of the Trinity, not decided at Nicaea. The official day to observe Easter, not decided at Nicaea. And the Sabbath Lord's Day issue wasn't even discussed. So what did they talk about? Well, the council's primary task was addressing this empire-wide uproar caused by the Arian controversy. So Arianism, as I'm sure many of you know, it was a heresy that taught Jesus as the Son of God was not co-eternal with God the Father. Instead, Jesus was an entity distinct from and subordinate to God. So they met to deal with all of the uproar that was surrounding that particular heresy. And the council's secondary accomplishment was establishing a a church-wide uniformity concerning things like bishops and church membership and other ecclesiastical matters. And here's an interesting side note. There's good reason to believe that the celibacy of the priesthood was introduced and then rejected at the council. But I digress. Let's take a look at the canons and the theology of the council. With the young Christian church quickly spreading across the empire and new Christian communities popping up everywhere, unity was one of the top concerns of Constantine and the bishops at this, at this council. So, consequently, they issued 20 canons 
that were primarily concerned with church procedure and the uniformity of religious observances. The canons addressed issues such as uh, how to appoint bishops, or circumstances under which bishops can be deposed and restored, or jurisdictional boundaries and church membership and other kind of logistical affairs. Now, our concern is the theology of the council. That's what our study is all about. And, and we find that summarized best in the official creed that they composed. Now, the original version of the Nicene Creed was published in AD 325. It was a product of this council. But as some of you may know, the church modified that creed a few years later in 381 at the Second Ecumenical Council, which was held in Constantinople. And that council added language about the Holy Spirit as worshipped and glorified along with the Father and the Son. But I'm going to read you the original version, the one that was written at Nicaea. And while I read this, I want you to be listening for any sort of anti-Jewish sentiment or anything that could even be a little bit of a slight towards Judaism or the Jewish people. See if you can pick up on it. The Creed says this, quote, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth who, because of us men and because of our salvation, came down and became incarnate and became man. He suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. But as for those who say there was when he was not and before being born, he was not and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or substance, or created, or is subject to alteration or change, these the apostolic and Catholic Church anathematizes. I love that lofty language, and at the end, those last few lines, you can really hear them taking direct aim at the Arian controversy and trying to settle that. Now, as you could see, or rather hear, I suppose, since this is a podcast, this document contains no suggestion of anti-Jewish sentiment. In fact, in the only lines that really even correlate to Judaism, the creed endorses the foundational Jewish teaching that there's only one God, and it was through him that all things were created. And more than that, the bishops of the council we know universally considered the Jewish Bible part of their holy scripture. As we've established in, in previous episodes, the sacred text of the Jews had been wholly accepted by the Christian church as a sacred text from the very beginning. So regardless of whatever anti-Jewish biases may have existed among the bishops or Constantine or the members of this church council, the creed and the canons that this council generated for posterity are not anti-Jewish. In fact, other than Marcion, whose heresy was roundly rejected, we looked at that a few episodes ago, there is little evidence to suggest that the church fathers at any time in the anti-Nicene era, nor at the Council of Nicaea itself, tried to remove the Jewishness from Christian theology, as our friends in the Hebrew Roots movement will often suggest. Uh, theologian Thomas Oden says this, quote, Nicaea was a milestone, not because it presented something new, but because it held to that same faith, that had been received directly from the apostles through the Spirit and with minimal perversion. 
So let's take a summary look at the council and compare it to the New Testament baselines that we established earlier in the series. Now, the primary achievement of the Council of the Nicaea, as we said, was, was settling the Arian controversy. And they did so by condemning Arius as a heretic and putting lines into that creed that directly address the substance of Christ. And the discussion that led to this pronouncement shows no evidence of anti-Jewish influence. In fact, the decision given in the form of the Nicene Creed relied directly on the Jewish scriptures. And in addition to this creed, the council issued 20 canons that were ecclesiastical, church-focused, rather than theological in nature. And these two had no uh, direct correlation to the church's attitudes towards Jews or Judaism. That said, the, the artifacts and decisions generated by the Council of Nicaea reveal some variation from our five-point biblical baseline. Now, there's, there's not much in the recorded discussions at Nicaea that directly correspond to our framework. However, we can glean some insight on the prevailing theology of the time through contemporaneous writers, such as Pamphilus and Peter of Alexandria and Eusebius. And we can, therefore, based on that work, reasonably conclude that the work of the council remained strong theologically. It's in the area of attitudes, though, that we see this shift in Nicaea. We see the most evidence of this in a letter that was written just after the council regarding the date for keeping Easter. And we're going to look at that in detail in a minute. But first, let's go through our five-point biblical framework here. So again, we've, we've pulled out or discovered a five-point framework for how Christians ought to consider or regard Jews as a people and the Jewish theology. And so we're going to go through all five of those right now real quick and compare them to uh, what we found at the Council of Nicaea. So uh, number one is recognize Israel's central role in God's story. Number two, acknowledge the failure of Jewish religious leadership. And number three, reject Jewish teachings that deny Christ. So regarding these first three points, there are really no recorded discussions that directly reveal the council's positions on these three. Uh, based on the prevailing theology of the church at the time, like I said, we, we can conclude that the bishops implicitly recognized Israel's central role in God's story. In particular, they recognized Jesus as the Jewish Messiah of the Hebrew Bible. And likewise, they, they tacitly acknowledged the failure of Jewish religious leaders to recognize him and rejected Jewish teachings that deny Christ. The fourth point in our framework is this, understand Israel's future salvation. And for us at Nicaea, the record stands silent on the issue. It just was not explicitly discussed. And then number five in our framework, love and earnestly desire the salvation of the Jews. And here's where we see a shift in attitude of the council, or at least of Constantine, to a more uh, divisive personal tone. And we're going to, again, look at that in just a minute when we take a look at Easter. So let's jump into those two theological markers. So the first marker we're going to look at is Sabbath versus the Lord's Day. And again, many from the Hebrew Roots Movement and others have claimed that Nicaea was where the church left Sabbath behind on the last day of the week and embraced the Lord's Day on the first of the week. Now, the Council of Nicaea made no official declarations regarding Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that it was even discussed. And as we saw earlier, Christians had been regularly meeting on the first day of the week for nearly 300 years before the council was convened. And consequently, gathering on the Lord's Day 
rather than the Sabbath was taken as normative by the time of Nicaea. For example, uh, the, the canon number 20 reads as follows, quote, For as much as there are certain persons who kneel on the Lord's day and in the days of Pentecost, therefore to the intent that all things be uniformly observed everywhere in every parish, it seems good to the Holy Synod that prayer be made to God standing. So these are the kind of things they were talking about. And you can see here how they just sort of took it for granted that we all meet on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Okay, so let's jump into the scandalous stuff and talk about what the council had to say about Passover versus Easter. Um, And that really is the most pertinent to our study is what they said about Easter. And what was ultimately established was independence from the Jewish calendar for the sake of church-wide uniformity. Eusebius records a letter from Constantine to those not present at the council. It was written after the council was over. And a matter of fact, if you get my book, Divergence, I've put this in the back in the appendix, the full letter called On the Keeping of Easter. If you want to read it, read it in its entirety to get the flavor, it's, it's not that long. But the opening paragraph of On the Keeping of Easter reads as follows, quote, When the question relative to the sacred festival of Easter arose, it was universally thought that it would be convenient that all should keep the feast on one day. For what could be more beautiful and more desirable than to see this festival, through which we receive the hope of immortality, celebrated by all with one accord and in the same manner? It was declared to be particularly unworthy for this, the holiest of all festivals, to follow the custom or the calculation of the Jews who had soiled their hands with the most fearful of crimes and whose minds were blinded. In rejecting their custom, we may transmit to our descendants the legitimate mode of celebrating Easter, which we have observed from the time of the Savior's passion to the present day, according to the day of the week. We ought not, therefore, to have anything in common with the Jews, for the Savior has shown us another way. Our worship follows a more legitimate and more convenient course, the order of the days of the week. And consequently, in unanimously adopting this mode, we desire, dearest brethren, to separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews, for it is truly shameful for us to hear them boast that without their direction we could not keep this feast. And there we start to see the rub. So keeping in mind the difficulty our modern minds have not seeing race as a motivation behind disagreements between people groups, which, by the way, that was something we dealt with in one of our early episodes, An examination of this letter certainly seems to reveal a shift in attitude, again, at least of Constantine, if not of the church council. And on behalf of the church, Constantine really takes offense at the religious Jews who deny Jesus and his resurrection. Understandable. We we can't have people denying Jesus. As we saw, Jesus has some very harsh words to say for those who deny him. However, it seems that Constantine has moved beyond you know, a reasonable theological disagreement, and he's moved into a disparaging personal opinion of Jews as a people. Now, his description of the Jews as a people who, quote, had soiled their hands with the most fearful of crimes and whose minds were blinded, end quote, that has biblical grounds. You know, we looked at that in the New Testament. Unbelieving Jews were accused of complicity in the crucifixion of Jesus. We saw that in Acts 2.23 and Acts 3, verses 13 through 18. And we saw that the Jews were veiled and hardened. We saw this in Romans 11.25 and in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 through 16. However, Constantine's stated desire to, quote, 
separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews, end quote, is certainly problematic. Now, because every other comment in this letter has the observance of Easter as its subject, it's reasonable to interpret this remark, too, as, as, similar, as similarly focused. In other words, we could kind of understand the emperor's meaning to be something like, hey, we don't want the celebration of Christ's resurrection connected to a holiday celebrated by those who deny Christ, right? The sentiment of separating Christian observances from deniers of Christ maybe shows, you know, a, a noble sense of piety and esteem for Jesus. However, Constantine's desire to separate from the, quote, detestable company of the Jews, close quote, reveals a, an unbiblical stance toward non-Christians. It's not very Christ-like. I mean, imagine if Jesus had chosen to separate himself from the detestable company of us sinners, right? So in this statement, we see Constantine clearly going beyond a mere theological need to distinguish Christianity from Judaism. He's promoting a distancing of Christians from the Jewish people. And his statement also suggests a lack of understanding regarding the continuity between Judaism and Christ. And we've seen that as a common thread throughout this series. This was something that the early Christian church had up until that point roundly affirmed. They were, they were in support of that and they taught that. So, you know, I mean, it's no coincidence that Jesus celebrated his last supper as a Passover Seder and his death and resurrection occurred during the very Pesach holiday that had been foretelling his passion for 1,500 years. So while choosing a date other than 14 Nisan, and again, that's the date that the Jews, it's a, the Jewish month of Nisan, the 14th day, was when the Jews would celebrate Passover and the Jewish Christians were celebrating Easter on that same day, which fell on a different day of the week every year. So choosing a date other than that there's nothing unbiblical about doing that. So again, we looked at this earlier that the Bible doesn't tell us specifically that we need to celebrate Easter, that we need to observe the resurrection. It's something that that came out of the Christian church. It was a grassroots movement that began very early. And the Bible also shows us that celebrating man-made traditions that honor God, such as Passover, we saw Jesus doing that, that's okay. So, so there's nothing wrong with celebrating Easter if we choose to, and there is no day ordained in the Bible on when it should be celebrated. So, you know, choosing a date other than 14 Nisan uh, wasn't unbiblical, but, and this is just my opinion, but it seems maybe a bit narrow-minded in hindsight. As the de facto head of the Christian church at the time, uh, we would hope for a more biblical tone from the emperor, you know, one that communicates an earnest desire for the salvation of the Jewish people. I, I think personally, a more appropriate would have been a Christ-like posture that encouraged love and prayer for the Jews despite, or maybe because of, their chosen position as enemies of Christ. But Constantine, who, you know, again, was raised a pagan um, and had only become a Christian a few years earlier, he was an outsider that was stepping into a family dynasty, so to speak, that predated him by centuries, and he found himself caught up in a sort of sibling rivalry between the Jews and the Christians, but he wasn't caught up as an equal, so rather than one of the quarreling siblings, Constantine was in a position of authority over them. He, he was more like a stepfather who married into this unrest, you know, and he didn't approach the conflict like a like a natural father would, encouraging unity between his rival sons. Instead, as the new stepfather, 
blind to the history and the nuances of the relationship, he kind of uh, boldly chose sides in such a way that it put others out. And I think it could have been done better. But of course, I'm just an armchair emperor, apparently. <laughs> so now that said, I, we do need to acknowledge that there was a legitimate need for the church to establish its boundaries at that time in history. You know, from a modern perspective, it's easy to view this ancient con conflict as like an oversimplified Jew versus Christian issue. But Jewish scholar Daniel Boyerin, we've quoted him quite a bit, he cautions us, this is in his book Borderlines, that the religious identities antiquity in antiquity were, were less sure than we think. He says this, quote, The very terms of identity were being worked on and worked out. Not only had there been a divided parting of the ways, but Christianity was deeply engaged in finding its identity, its boundaries, and even busily and noisily sorting out what kind of an entity it would be, what kind of an identity it would form, end quote. So it was likely this socio-political need that drove the church to assertively mark its borderlines. And in some cases, and I think this is one of them, it overreached in that effort. Now, regarding Easter, I think it's notable that the Nicene ruling, as we just read, it didn't offer any specific directive for determining the date of Easter. And as you may know, in the centuries following Nicaea, many attempts were made at, at calculating a date for Easter that all of Christendom could, could affirm. And it wasn't actually until the early 9th century under Charles the Great that a calculation was in, unanimously adopted. And our, our favorite historians here, Schaff and Wace, they wrote this, quote, it is curious that after all the attempts that have been made to get this matter settled, the church is still separated into East and West, the latter having accepted the Gregorian calendar from which the Eastern church, still using the Julian calendar, differs in being 12 days behind. And even in the West, we have succeeded in breaking the spirit of the Nicene decree, for in 1825, the Christian Easter coincided with the Jewish Passover, close quote. But as far as Nicaea, no date was suggested. Constantine only wrote, quote, All our brethren in the East are henceforth to celebrate the said most sacred feast of Easter at the time with the Romans and yourselves, close quote. The goal wasn't to instruct the Christian church when Easter was to be observed, but rather just to ensure that it was observed in unity. Okay, so in summary, we see that the Council of Nicaea ultimately closed with the theology of the New Testament fundamentally uncorrupted. However, the Christian attitudes towards Jews and Judaism had begun drifting, and in the evolution of the Christian church in the centuries following Nicaea, we unfortunately find outright anti-Semitism rearing its ugly head from the church. So rather than the culmination of centuries of growing anti-Semitism within Christianity, the Council of Nicaea seems instead to have marked its beginning. I mean, we could almost make the argument that Christianity's evolution from a persecuted faith in the first three centuries uh, to a religion in power brought with it many unfortunate and unbiblical side effects. But that's a discussion for another day, maybe for another book. Okay, so this is a good place to wrap it up. Now, this kind of seems like the end of the story, the end of the study, and in a sense it is. We, we got through the scope of history that we wanted to look at from Jesus and his ministry all the way up through the Council of Nicaea. However, we've got one more episode that's going to be the last one in this mini-series, and we're going to put a nice bow on our study, and I'm going to offer some closing thoughts and some takeaways from this study next time on the Divergence Podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. Uh, Again, you can check out divergencebook.com or rlsolberg.com. And I will catch you next time. Shalom. Shalom.